Well, before I get up to read our text uh, for this morning, just wanted to uh, give uh, this to you, and then this to you, Andrew. Um, and on also just to say congratulations uh, to each of you as families. There's actually something else I want to say, though, too, which is a happy birthday, uh, both to Jace and then also to Clara. Uh, this is what's known in Christian theology as their baptism birthday. And that's because in the same way that they were born into life at one point in their lives, they're born into new life in Christ uh, on their baptism birthday. And I've actually heard of, of some uh, Christian families that practice what are called baptism birthdays. Uh, one of my professors in seminary did that with his own children. He said they loved it because they got a second ba- or a birthday every year. Um, I don't think they gave as many gifts as on the regular birthday. He said it was normally just a book relating to their faith to help their kids grow in their faith. But uh, let this be the first uh, Birth, baptism birthday gift that each of them get. And uh, and yeah, use use it. This is the Jesus Storybook Bible, which we actually use with our own kids at home. I love this, uh, this Storybook Bible and uh, help them grow in their faith as well as parents as you've uh, committed to this morning. I'm going to have us uh, open to our text for this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent this morning. So I'll have you turn, of course, to the book of Hebrews. Thank you for getting that joke. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We are starting a sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. There's 15 of them, Psalms 120 through 134, but we're using this as kind of an introductory week because what those Psalms really are all about is they're about discipleship. Um, Those were the Psalms that the Hebrew pilgrims would sing on their way uh, to Jerusalem for the major religious festivals in the uh, Jewish religious calendar. Uh, So one in the spring, one in the summer, and one in the fall. And as they made their way there, they would sing these Psalms as a way of preparing them to worship in God's presence, uh, to make them into disciples or followers of God. And the same thing is true for us today. These psalms continue to resonate with us as Christians because they form and shape us into people who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to spend the next 15 weeks there, but first we're going to kind of preface this whole series by talking about discipleship this morning. So Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is what uh, the writer of Hebrews said to the church back then as well as to us today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the, the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers, in Jesus Christ, a few years ago, I biked across the country with a group of other people. Uh, There were 87 of us total. We rode from Los Angeles to New York City, dipping our back tires in the Pacific Ocean when we started and our front tires in the Atlantic when we finished. It took nine weeks. We covered 3,900 miles over over that course of time, and we rode every day except Sunday. And it was all to raise money to fight poverty. Now, in the time since then, it's been about eight years now, I would tell you that there are much more effective ways uh, to raise money to fight poverty than uh, cycling across the country, but it made sense to me at the time, and it also ended up being a pretty cool adventure that Sarah will tell you I still have way too many stories from. Oh, you did C2C? You never bring that up, Brandon. Um, 
Well, one of those stories is a conversation that I remember a few of us riders having one day. We'd already finished our ride uh, for that day, and we were trying to look up the weather for the next day to see what we were going to be facing. And uh, for whatever reason, whether the internet was just kind of spotty, which happened often during the journey, or the app just wasn't working, the Weather Channel app, we couldn't get it to pull up. And uh, we were a little frustrated about that when one of the other riders who was sitting nearby as we were fiddling with our phones chimed in, and he said, what, is, what does it matter anyway? You're still going to ride tomorrow regardless, right? If it's raining, you'll still ride, won't you? And we said, yes. He said, what about if it's windy? Yes, we said. If it's hot, yes. If it's cold, yes. If it's uphill or downhill, yep, we'll still ride. And then after a moment of silence, he said, well, then I guess you don't need to see what the weather's going to look like, do you? Because you're going to ride anyway. And he was right. We did. Every single day we rode, no matter the conditions. When it was hot, we rode. When it was cold, we rode. When it was sunny, we rode. When it was rainy, we rode. On those days where it's somewhere sort of in between those two, sort of sunny and rainy at the same time, we rode. When it was uphill, we rode. When it was downhill, we rode. Whether it was windy, still, or anything else, we rode. Every day, one pedal stroke after another, mile by mile, town by town, state by state. That's how we got from one coast to another, from sea to sea, as the tour was called, chipping away at it, a bit by bit, a day at a time. And it strikes me that the Christian life is much the same way. Like a multi-month cross-country bike tour, it's slow but steady. It's unhurried yet evenly paced. It's consistent, constant, and unwavering, always set on its goal. It is, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the book that we're using as a companion to this series, a long obedience in the same direction. And that direction is towards Jesus Christ. Now that's different from much of the rest of the world we live in. Put simply, we live in an instant society that has no time for things like that. No time for a long obedience in the same direction. In fact, we don't really have time in our society for anything that takes a long time. Anything that resembles obedience or anything that moves only in one direction. Instead, we modern people who live in the world today are a scattered, disordered bunch who want what we want now. We live in an instantaneous society demanding on-the-spot results in real time. We want it our way, freaky fast, and exactly according to our tastes and preferences. You do you, we say, and I'll do me, and we do. That's how we live. Time is money, money is power, and power is all that matters. He who dies with the most toys wins, and we're all dying to get there. We're a people who are formed and shaped by the impatient pressure of an immediate environment constantly rushing from one thing to the next and ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. There's no exit strategy, there's no chance to slow down, and failure is not an option. It's endless, it's nerve-wracking, and it's exhausting. It's a hamster wheel that never stops spinning and forms us into frustrated, shallow, and discontented people. Our goals are legion, and they leave us empty. And on top of that, those goals that we so desperately pursue and, and just hurdle ourselves towards as modern people are such a far cry 
from the Christian goal of Jesus. We alternate back and forth between the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, conquest, control, and command, pleasure, ecstasy, and amusement, significance, beauty, and value, fame, fortune, and fantasy, and yet we find all of it in turn rapturous and void of meaning, satisfying and stale, fulfilling and futile, often at the same time. That's our existence. That's our culture. And that's the quote-unquote good life that we are everywhere and always marketed and sold as the way that we ought to live. But the good news that Scripture gives us is that there's also another way. There's a different option. There's a different kind of life out there. It's the life that we were truly made for, the life of the Christian, the life of long obedience, not to all the siren songs that clamor for our attention, but instead Long obedience to Jesus Christ. To put it another way, it's the life of discipleship. You know what a disciple is, right? It's someone who follows someone else. This is actually a concept we're fairly uh, well familiar with in our social media saturated society these days because we follow others online, we have followers of our own, and that's actually a pretty good example of what discipleship is as scripture talks about it. Discipleship is following someone, learning from them, apprenticing yourself to them, not in a market or a trade or a skill, but in your very life. It's learning how to think, how to live, how to be as a human being from another person. It's imitation, reproduction, replication of that person's traits, their temperament, and their character in yourself. It is, in a word that we shrink away from in our culture and society these days, submission. It's submission to one greater than us, submission to one wiser than us, and submission to one who, if we give them the chance, might just be able to help us become the kind of people that we're supposed to be. There's an old Jewish blessing that sums all of that up pretty well. Um, Apparently, Jewish disciples of one rabbi or another would sometimes say to each other, may you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. In other words, what those disciples were saying to each other was that in order to learn from their rabbi, their teacher, their master, in order to really learn from them as he went about his day, lived his life, and taught and instructed them, they needed to be following him so closely, hanging so carefully on his every word, and learning so eagerly from him how he lived that by the end of the day, they would actually be covered in the dust that his feet kicked up as they walked along. That's discipleship. To follow some, someone so closely that you are covered in their dust by the end of the day. A disciple is one who constantly learns from their teacher. They sit at the feet of their master and hear everything that he or she says. They follow them everywhere. In fact, I've even read stories uh, in commentary work about uh, certain Jewish disciples who were caught sleeping under their rabbi's bed or congregated outside the door while he was using the bathroom all in an attempt to learn from their master not just what he was like in, the, in those formal moments of instruction, 
but all the rest of the time too, offline, in the mundane, everyday moments of his life. I think that's probably taking the whole discipleship thing a bit too far, but you get the idea, right? Discipleship is an all-of-life endeavor. It's an education in the school of a life well-lived. It's conformity to the character and attributes of your master. And that's what this text here in Hebrews 12 is talking about. You see, these verses come on the heels of one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, the famous Cloud of Witnesses chapter in Hebrews 11. Uh, In that chapter, the author of Hebrews spends 40 verses telling us the stories of all kinds of people from the Old Testament. Uh, He tells the stories of Abel and Enoch and Noah. He tells the story of Abraham and Sarah. He tells the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He tells the stories of Moses and the Israelites and Rahab. He tells the stories of judges and prophets and kings. And then after doing that, after surveying this whole great assembly, of all of these figures from salvation history, he writes this in our passage for this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, there's a lot going on both in Hebrews 11 as well as our passage for this morning. We don't have time to unpack all of it uh, today. But for our purposes, there are just two main things that I want us to understand here. First, at least part of what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that even if they didn't have the full picture, even if they didn't completely understand what, what it all looked like or where it was all headed, even if they were a bit in the dark or ahead of their time, part of, of what sustained all those folks whose stories the author of Hebrews tells, all those people who made up that cloud of witnesses, part of what sustained them was some kind of vision or expectation or foresight of Jesus' eventual coming. In other words, the author of Hebrews here seems to be implying that even though all those heroes of the faith that he lists in chapter 11 lived and played their part in the story of God long before Jesus Christ ever came along, through the miraculous power and revelation of the Holy Spirit, as a gift, as an act of his grace, God gave them some sense or some feeling or some awareness of where the whole story was headed. Uh, To put it another way, The author of Hebrews is telling us that those who make up this cloud of witnesses had a vision of Christ before he ever even came, before he was ever even born, before he was incarnated. And that's part of what sustained them in their faithfulness to God. They had some kind of advance notice, a preview of sorts, a sneak peek, if you will, of what God was directing things towards, how he was directing them towards his son. They had a taste of Jesus even before he was born. And that's part of what kept them going in their faith. This, by the way, is what Jesus himself seems to be saying in John chapter 8, verse 56. In that passage, he's debating a whole bunch of people who actually think he's demon-possessed and is sort of a a way of undermining or or delegitimizing Jesus. They bring up Abraham and they say that that he was a far greater prophet than Jesus will ever be. And in response, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. 
The point is that it was their vision of the, of the future, their anticipation and expectation of what God would someday do, their incomplete but privileged foresight of Jesus that helped all those patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith that the author of Hebrews lists in chapter 11 run the race, persevere through whatever difficulties they faced along the way, and continue to mark out that long obedience that God had called them to all the way to the end. And the same needs to be true for us. And that's the second thing we need to understand from this text. In essence, what, what, the, writer, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying here is that we're no different from all of the people who have come before us when it comes to our relationship with God. Their advanced vision of Christ sustained them, and it's the same thing that sustains us still today. It's the same thing that keeps us going, the same thing that fuels us and helps us to persevere just like the saints of old. Fix your eyes on Jesus, he tells us, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Set your sights on him. Make him your vision and goal. Apprentice and disciple yourself to him, your master. Cover yourself in his dust, just like those who have done so before. The tragedy in today's day and age, though, really, actually in any day and age, is that there are so many others who compete for that kind of attention. There are so many others whose dust we end up covered in instead of Jesus. You see, the truth is, we don't find ourselves beholden to or converted or inculcated and obsessed by our culture, harried and hurried, distracted and scattered. We don't find ourselves that way by accident. We don't end up the sort of instant, quick-fix, me-first people that we are by chance. We don't unintentionally buy into this whole not-so-good life that we are sold at every turn in our society. Instead, we have a whole host of other masters who vie for our attention and try to make us more like them. Get rich quick gurus and rapid success rabbis, take the easy way teachers and artists of the deal, shortcut the system superstars and leading lights who lead us in the way of laziness and lethargy rather than in the long road of discipline, dedication, and resolve. We are a people these days pulled in a thousand different directions, caught up in the rat race, wide-eyed at the glitz, the glam, the bright lights, and the spectacle. And if you don't believe me, just look at the people who we elevate to positions of status, influence, and power, both in society as a whole and also in our own hearts, our own lives. We adore, revere, and stand in awe of the celebrity and the athlete, the mogul and the CEO, the politician and the pundit, the influencer and the artist, the billionaire and the heiress, all the while fawning over them and giving them our time, our attention, even our very souls. I'll give you an example. His name is Jake Paul. If you're 18 years old or younger, you know exactly who I'm talking about. If you're older than that, let me fill you in. Uh, Jake's one of two brothers. Logan's the other and originally famous one, and to start, they were social media superstars who amassed a gigantic following on the now defunct Twitter-owned uh, video service called Vine. It was basically an ahead-of-its-time TikTok. 
Uh, in the years since Vine closed down, the Paul brothers have since moved on to YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok itself. But somewhere along the way, in a move that makes complete sense, they also picked up boxing. It all started when a fellow celebrity YouTuber challenged Logan uh, to an amateur boxing match, which he took, and then after two fights against that YouTuber in just his third boxing match ever, Logan found himself in the ring with one of the greatest boxers of all time, our own native son from here in Grand Rapids, Floyd Mayweather. Just so you know, Floyd Mayweather has over 50 victories and no losses. Logan was in his third ever boxing match. Okay? Um, I'll suffice it to say that most serious boxing fans will tell you that it was an entire waste of time, but it made both of them a lot of money and gained a lot of attention. And so not to be outdone, younger brother Jake has launched his own boxing career now. And at five fights, he's officially got two more than older brother Logan. Unlike Logan, though, who after fighting Mayweather can say that he actually has gone up against a real boxer, Jake hasn't fought a boxer. All of his bouts so far have been against other YouTubers, a former professional basketball player, and two former MMA fighters, none of whom had much, if any, prior boxing experience themselves. And yet somehow, his fights the last couple of years have ranked as some of the highest pay-per-view fights in recent history. In fact, his last one just a few weeks ago might end up becoming fifth all-time in pay-per-view selling boxing matches. Five fights under his belt, and he's already leapfrogged just about every other boxer on earth in terms of earnings, attention, and influence on the sport. And why? Because he's a celebrity. Because he has followers. And because he brings those followers with him wherever he goes, from Vine to Instagram to YouTube to TikTok and now into the boxing ring. Those are the kind of people that we lift up in our culture. Those are the kind of people that we revere. Those are the stories that we care about. It doesn't matter if the talent's there. It doesn't matter if there's any experience. We can just check the need for qualifications at the door. No problem if it's all just a gimmick, an addiction to attention, a sideshow to anything of real significance and substance. In our day and age, all that matters is the effect, the impact, the sway that someone is able to have over others. That's what makes them a success. That's what makes them valuable. That's what makes them worthy of following. Or to put it another way, this is what discipleship has become in our culture. Following people not because they teach us anything, not because they're leading us anywhere, not because they have the secret to a life well lived. In fact, it's obvious for many of these cases that they don't, but simply because they're famous, because they have name recognition, and because there's a whole bunch of other people already following them. And yet this is where Eugene Peterson believes that the Psalms of Ascent can help us. In the first chapter of, of this book that we're going to be using uh, to explain and, and find our way into these Psalms, he writes this, In the pastoral work of training people in discipleship and accompanying them in pilgrimage, I have found, tucked away in the Hebrew Psalter, an old dog-eared songbook, 
I have used it to provide continuity in guiding others in the Christian way and directing people of faith in the conscious and continuous effort that develops into maturity in Christ. The old songbook is called in Hebrew, Sherei Hamaloth, Songs of Ascents. The songs are the Psalms numbered 120 through 134 in the book of Psalms. And these 15 Psalms were likely sung, possibly in sequence, by Hebrew pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem to the great worship festivals. Topographically, Jerusalem was the highest city in Palestine, and so all who traveled there spent much of their time ascending. But the ascent was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity, what Paul, the Apostle Paul, described as the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. In other words, these psalms that we're going to spend the next 15 weeks studying together are formative. They are formative. For generation after generation of Jewish Jewish believers, they outlined, oriented, and gave shape to their worship of God. They accompanied them on their pilgrimage into the Lord's presence at his temple in Jerusalem. In the simplest of terms, these psalms made the people who sang them into disciples clean of heart, pure of spirit, ready to stand before their God in awe and submission to him. And Peterson believes that they can do the same thing for us still today. You see, we're all disciples of something. It's not a question of if. It's a question of what. We're all disciples of something. We're all disciples of someone. In fact, often we are disciples of multiple somethings and someones. The only question is where does God fit into the mix of all of that? Does he have, in the words of Colossians 1.18, in all things the first place in our lives? Or is he a little further down, tucked down the totem pole and a few notches below where he belongs? If so, these psalms can help us. They're traveling songs, guides along the way, companions for the long obedience that we are called to live as Christian believers. Peterson writes, there are no better songs for the road for those who travel the way of faith in Christ, a way that, so many a way that has so many continuities with the way of Israel. Since many, though not all, essential items in Christian discipleship are incorporated into these songs, they provide a way to remember who we are and where we are going. If we learn to sing them well, they can be a kind of vade mecum, which is Latin for handbook or guide for a Christian's daily walk. You see, in addition to being disciples, we are also pilgrims. We are people on the way, inspired by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us and running with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us. And like the Israelites of old who sang these songs so long ago, we too have a goal set before us. Only instead of making our way to worship at a temple in a holy city somewhere, we are instead making our way to Christ who took our sin and our shame on himself so that we could be restored and renewed in our relationship with God through him. 
That's where we're heading. We have fixed our eyes on Jesus. We have made him our sole focus and destination. We make him alone our goal. And that, my friends, is only possible because he first made us his goal. As the writer of Hebrews says here, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the gospel. Jesus is our goal because we were first his. We run after him now because he first ran after us. We are his disciples today because just like in scripture, he took the first step and called us to become his disciples. We are pilgrims on the way in pursuit of him all because he first pursued us. In the midst of our sin and rebellion and shame, Christ came to us, rescued us, and called us back to himself. All of that, and here's where the grace, I think, becomes too clear to ignore. He did that all for us before we were ever even aware or conscious of it. You see, while that cloud of witnesses in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews mentions, they had to have some sort of advance vision or notice of where it was all heading in Christ, we actually have the opposite problem, if you will. They had yet to see Christ come. In our case, we have come after Christ. All of that salvific work that Christ has done on our behalf has happened long before we ever came into being. And we actually saw this here this morning in the baptisms of Jace and Clara, before we were ever even aware of it, Christ did his work for us. He chose us before we chose him. He predestined us and made us his own before we even had a chance to be involved. He made us pilgrims on the way to him, his disciples, his people, long before we could do or say anything about it. Remember that. Remember your baptism in Christ. Remember everything that he has done for you. Because doing so is what sustains us in this race of faith as we travel this long obedience in the same direction and as we disciple ourselves to him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are all disciples of something. It is easy to disciple ourselves after so many other voices, so many other influences, and this is not a new problem. It looks different in our world today, but it is the age-old problem of idolatry and sin. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would restore us to yourself. Make us your disciples, first and foremost. Make us pilgrims who not only will, but want to journey toward you. This is all possible because of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.